This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. It's easy to forget given today's weather, but uh, of course, summer is just around the corner. Temperatures are rising, and with El Nino in full play, it's not going to be too long until a cool park and a shady tree might be exactly what the doctor ordered. But like too many things that are good for us, you and I might have very different experiences when it comes to finding and accessing these green spaces. My name's Nick Healy. I'm filling in for the next couple of days for Rochelle, coming to you from ABC Shepparton in the Goulburn Valley. And, And where I am, it's really easy to take green space for granted. It feels like it's just everywhere and easily accessed by anyone and everyone. But of course, that's not the case in the city. And honestly, it's not even the case in some of the larger regional centres where I think all too often where you live, the affluence of your neighbourhood, they can all have a really big impact on what green space is available. And today, you and I are going to talk about why this matters, uh, why it matters for our physical health, our mental health, why it matters for the environment, why it even matters for our social life. And if it's so important, what do we do to make sure all of us have equitable access to these places? Now, this morning, I want to hear about your suburb, your town, where you live. Do you have a sizable green space close to you? Do you use it? Was it part of deciding where you wanted to live? And maybe what needs to change to make it better? What about smaller green spaces? What about things like nature strips? This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Talking about close green spaces, the World Health Organisation, WHO, actually has guidelines for this. If you live in an urban area, the recommendation is to have at least half a hectare of green space within 300 metres. And I'd be really curious to know how many towns and cities can actually boast that. Now, Carolina Huelta is from the University of Melbourne. She's a PhD candidate in the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. She's an expert in the role that green spaces play in the built environment and in urban areas. And a very good morning to you, Carolina. Hi, hello. Good morning. Let's define what we mean by green space. I mean, obviously it comes to mind, I'm thinking of parks, but what else comes in? It can also be gardens. It can also be be um, greening areas. It's everything that it's a vegetated area and in urban context are vegetated areas located in the urban spaces. So your work has been looking closely at, at, at who gets access to these spaces, how equitable their distribution is. What have you found? Well, for example, I found that in Australia there are several disparities in green space availability and they can be attributed to various planning policies at the state level and this impact different cities. For example, in in Melbourne, the Victorian planning provisions stipulate that local parks should be situated within a safe walking distance of 400 metres for at least 95% of all neighbourhoods. However, in other cities, for example, in Perth, a requirement mandates that only 10% of all subdivisible land must be allocated to parks and open spaces. This, of course, creates disparities. Also, um, disadvantaged communities often have less resources to advocate for more green areas, while more wealthy communities have more resources and 
play a better part advocating for more green areas and not only more green areas, but better quality green areas. We're going to hear really soon, I guess, what some of the benefits are for individual, but I get the sense that there's actually broad benefits for cities to have better green spaces as well, you know, in terms of cooling, in terms of energy. I mean, they can, they can energy consumption has a really big impact, doesn't it? It does. Um, integrating or enhancing green spaces also can bring new life into neighbourhoods. They can increase the quality of life of the people living in those neighbourhoods. They can also uh, improve stress levels um, and they can also be places where the communities strengthen and they can create social uh, cohesion among that community. And they also assist in moderating temp- temperatures, counteracting the urban heat island effect and creating a more pleasant living environment. Um, and because of this, they can also mitigate the adverse health effects that heat waves have. Sorry, Carolina, what's the, uh, what is called the urban heat island effect? What's that? It is because usually the materials um, where that cities have been built, um, a lot of heat is concentrated in urban areas. This in addition to pollution levels and the amount of people living in, in, uh, in urban spaces, this makes that Compared to the rural counterparts, the temperature in urban areas is much more higher. And uh, with the different phenomenons affecting the earth right now, such as El Niño, or we are seeing rising temperatures every year, um, heat waves are something that is causing things such as cardiovascular and respiratory diseases, heightened hospital admissions, psychological stress, sometimes aggressive behavior and excess of mortality in cities. Aggressive behaviour and excess of mortality. What? How, how's that being impacted? Because um, they, it can impact mental health, but it can also impact uh, people can die from heat waves. Well, yeah, I, I think it was more interested in the um uh, the, the the aggressive behaviour, uh, and that's based on the mental health side of it, is it? Yes, that's based on the mental side of it, um, and. The green spaces can alleviate that because they can help uh, mitigate some of the stress caused by uh, by urban factors. They can also help uh, people feel better. Um, there are several studies that even say that they can help, for example, uh, people diminish their use of antidepressants and anxiolytics. Carolina, we're talking sort of Australia at the moment. What are you also seeing overseas? I know you've worked a, a lot in countries overseas. Is there anywhere, any countries, any cities doing this particularly well at the moment? Well, currently I'm working uh, for the University of Edinburgh and we are developing a program uh, to enhance access and also availability of green spaces in the UK. And I think um, the UK is one of the countries worldwide which has uh, been very proactive in trying that everyone gets uh, fair access to green spaces and that these spaces are of high quality and it involves communities so that um, they mandate which specific features these green spaces have so that they can use them more often and they can see their benefits. 
Caroline, I'll just get you to hang on the line for a minute because Jan from Keelor Downs has called in. Yeah, when we first bought in 1986, we were told the land in Keelor Downs adjoining the shopping centre was meant to be for parkland and for public use. Um, now, private builders are building ugly two-storey cramped units and it's going to look like a nightmare in five years' time. There's not enough parking there. There's no nice developed parklands in Keelor Downs. They have got some parklands, but they haven't done much with them. Um, the residents here, we've just been forgotten and we feel powerless. Even the walks in the suburbs aren't not as nice as they could be. We've just been forgotten and we feel powerless. It's sad. It is sad. And, and look, you know, you said that there was that space that was meant to be for park, for green space. Had that been part of what you were looking at when you were moving to Keelor Downs, part of the appeal? Definitely. We were looking at close schools and oh. parkland so we could, you know, enjoy our family life. We do have Grimbank Park, but we have to travel by car to get there. And, of course, Taylor's Lakes have got lovely parklands there, but we we're a big suburb and there's a lot of old people here and families, mostly. And, look, I've tried to contact the council, but you just get forgotten. They, you know, nothing gets done. Yeah, Jan, thanks for calling in. I really appreciate it. one 774 And I think back to you, Carolina, that sort of, I guess, where we're going to see a lot of... Um, a lot of conflict is we know that urban centres are getting more developed, busier. It's going to be very easy for councils to say, well, we need that land for new housing developments. You know, we're in the middle of a housing crisis here. Uh, we, we can do without the green space. Sure. I think that there is not an enough emphasis placed on the health and environmental benefits that green spaces provide. And this is why in many cases, these spaces are not given priority in the urban planning agenda. However, um, and as established by the World Health Organization, there is this concept called healthy urban planning. And I think that more cities are adopting it, in which um, the concept of urban planning is entangled with the health considerations in mind. Are there, I guess, complexities to making sure that these spaces are maintained to the right level? Yes, uh, and I think um, those are some of the challenges. Sometimes um, because green spaces need um, a lot of water, you need to be very mindful on the, on the type of uh, biodiversity you're going to integrate into these spaces. Sometimes plants or trees that are more adaptable to hot weather are better or that are local. Also, I think involving communities in the maintenance of their green spaces, it's very important in many places where the communities are heavily involved in taking care of these areas and using them more. Um, these are strategies that have been proven effective for the long-term sustainability of these spaces. We do see a lot of love for community gardens and, and they can turn into quite a um, quite a cultural phenomenon when they're done well. Yes, absolutely. And I think that they can also foster social cohesion and improve the quality of life of neighbourhoods. In many ways, I think if people are looking, councils, governments, communities, they're looking to expand their green spaces at the moment, work out what's next. Do they need to be, I guess, planning for a green space for the environment we're going to have in, in 10, 15 years, not the one we have now? 
Absolutely. I think um, as well in the long term, exposure to green spaces can address several issues such as um, lower socioeconomic health disparities by providing opportunities for sustained restoration and physical activity for populations with limited access to such resources. That's something that we saw during the pandemic. Uh, many uh, recreation op options were closed and people with access to these spaces had better health outcomes. Um, in addition, the consistent use of these spaces can also foster a sense of community. They can cultivate a more interconnected and engaged population over time. And also, uh, they can contribute to the preservation of biodiversity and they can uh, provide the cooling off effect that I think that as temperatures keep increasing, it's going to prove more and more uh, needed. Carolina, really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to us, especially given the time difference where you are in Edinburgh at the moment. Carolina Huelta is a research associate in School of Landscape Architecture at the University of Edinburgh, formerly at the University of Melbourne. Talking about equitable access to green spaces, and I find this very interesting. Jeff, Jeff describing himself as a realist, has texted in saying, why are we putting such a utopian requirement on improving green space Equity doesn't exist in any issue, whether you're talking housing, healthcare, education, safety. We should aim to improve, but we shouldn't be naive about everyone being able to get equitable access. Love to hear from you on this topic. Do green spaces matter to you? Do you have access to a nearby park or a garden? Should we be thinking about how we better use nature strips, rooftops? Should we be changing the way we think about golf courses? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. My name's Nick Healy, filling in for Rochelle for the next few days, coming to you from ABC Shepparton in the Goulburn Valley. We are talking about green spaces, why they matter, what impact they have on us, on our society, on the cities and towns and regions around us, but also how we rethink them and what we need to be doing next to make sure that we get access to green spaces on a more equitable level, even if maybe equitable is a controversial term at the moment. On the line, we've got Diane from Beaconsfield. Diane, good morning. Oh, hi, Nick. Nice to talk with you and Shep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I've recently joined the group. We're in the Shire of Cardinia. Um, Melbourne Water have a reservoir there. It was built in 1918, way back, with a, um, quite an immense of adjoining forestry. Um, yeah, we have 90,000 more people moving into the Shire of Cardinia in the next Oof. 10 years. And Melbourne Water have essentially locked the land up and the reservoir. Um, they're also planning to drain the reservoir to quite a low level. Uh, so we'll have no access to that water during bushfires for helicopters. Yeah. Well, hang on. So they're going to drain the reservoir down? What's the plan? Yeah, Just to open up more space? No, there's still it will still be totally closed to the public, yeah. Oh. Um, if they, um, because of safety issues, they would need to uh, reinforce the, the wall of the dam, although it has been fine since 1918. Um, and they just essentially, yeah, we haven't even been able to access it for a photography day. We've been told that we need to pay uh, several hundred dollars just to access our own public land, so, you know. Diane, that must be infuriating. Well, I think it is not so much, you know, we happen to have some space, but 
all of the people moving into that growth corridor often now have houses with no gardens for children. Um, you know, there's an opportunity to have fishing there, um, bushwalking, environmental education. It is the most fantastic, beautiful area. Um, people could see it on our Facebook page, Beaconsfield Reservoir Action Group. You know, it's a stunning area and it's just been just closed off to, yeah, all those people moving into the area. I'm glad you mentioned education because it's something that hasn't come up yet and something fascinating to me is often when we think about these green spaces, we're thinking in a very passive way. You know, you're going, you might kick a ball around or have a lie down. But, of course, there's very active uses that can help educate younger generations talking about the environment or even talking about sort of, I I guess, the, the flora and fauna that you can see while you're out and about. It's a particularly diverse area in terms mm. of flora and fauna. There is an adjoining scout camp as well, so we're talking about other groups like the scouts have also not been able to access this the, the, the reservoir and park in recent years. Yeah, so um, it, you know, Vic fish are really interested. Um, it's also possibly a heritage site as well due to the history of it. Um, but yeah, the the discussions with Melbourne Water so far have just been completely, yeah, just a no. <laughs> well, Diane, it sounds like it's something incredibly important to you and the community, and it's great to see everyone rallying around to try and make that change. Also calling in Leon in Reservoir. Leon, um, what's the green spaces like around your part of the world? Uh, yeah, well, where I grew up in uh, Burundara, now Durban Reservoir, my green spaces are very good. Lots of creeks, lots of open space. But I can still see that they are diminishing. Mm. Uh, we have bigger houses, more homes on blocks, and that's a diminishing principle of green space and ecosystems. In 2021, Victoria had an ecosystem decline on Victoria. Uh, we know what's happening in terms of losing ecosystems and green space, and that's because I think we're not addressing the issue of the economic system's principles and priorities of growth. And whilst that's going on, we're always going to be losing green space and the wealthier in our society are going to be able to afford green space while the poorer are not. So unless we address capitalism's expansionist principles, we are always going to be on the back foot as a society. You're saying it is almost indicative of that fundamental discord that we're seeing at the moment. Oh, absolutely. And it's not new. It's just that the people that have the... Uh, leaders of power who want growth, they parrot more jobs, more building, we're always going to be losing green space under those principles. Leon, I'm really glad you called in. It was great to chat and thank you very much. And quite a few interesting texts coming through suggesting that uh, Melbourne water reservoirs are closed to public to protect the water sources from contamination. This is one of the reasons we have some of the best drinking water in Australia. Robin, thank you very much. And a couple of people suggesting that overseas we've seen some really fascinating changes in the way that we think about green spaces. Someone saying it's really worth understanding the concept of green space and legacy central 
Central Park in New York City is a fantastic example of this being taken down for generations or brought forward rather for generations. We've had a broad look at the green space and the effect they have on cities and towns and populations but of course they also have a huge impact on us as individuals. Now Thomas Astle Bird is Professor of Population Health and Environmental Data Science at, uh, at my old alma mater actually at the University of Wollongong. Thomas good morning to you. Good to be with you, Nick. And might I say, um, how wonderful it is to hear such passionate voices from all of your listeners. It's fantastic listening in today. It is, because this is obviously something that we don't take for granted. And I think more and more that's going to become something we do need to fight for. Because I know you've looked very, very closely at, I guess, what a good easily accessed, well-maintained green space means for us. Now, I just wanted to sort of start in terms of physical health, what sort of benefits we see. Oh, it's immense. The range of physical health benefits we can see from having contact with green spaces, but other forms of nature as well. For example, um, down by the beach or up in the mountains or having a pleasant walk um, along a a river footpath. And there are so many benefits. And these, for example, um, from my research have shown we can reduce our blood pressure. It's really important because keeping a good, healthy blood pressure is important for keeping our hearts ticking over well, keeping um, out of hospital for other reasons such as diabetes. And indeed, we see that those of us who have more trees nearby, more park, we use more parks more often and so on, we tend to have less heart disease and also less diabetes as well. And these are the big some of the big things that really trouble our health system on a daily basis. We're not saying that investing in more parks and more trees and all the rest of it is going to be the panacea that solves all of these health problems, but they will help a lot. And everything that we can do to keep people healthy and out of hospital is a good investment in my view. Oh, absolutely. And you talk about two of the big killers as well, diabetes and heart disease. And, and I was fascinated talking to Carolina before her research, showing that in terms of mental health, this, places that don't have easy access to green spaces can have higher incidence of violent behaviour. I mean, these are direct impacts that we're seeing. Well, that, that, that was a very interesting result um, that uh, Carolina mentioned. And, it, you know, it parallels in a kind of mirror opposite some work that my PhD student at the University of Wollongong, uh, which I, I now understand you also went to, which is fantastic, good to be among friends. Um, my student actually showed the mirror opposite, that adolescents growing up in Australia who have better quality green spaces nearby that they can regularly go out and enjoy time outdoors, be physically active, be socially active, be volunteering in the community and all the rest of it, that actually develops a sense of sharing and citizenship and compassion, what we refer to as pro-social behaviours. It's pretty much the opposite of the aggressive behaviours which we mentioned earlier, the extent to which people feel better um, citizenship and the sense of sharing and getting involved in community activities. These places, these green spaces, can be settings where we really build a sense of belonging in our community and everybody feels part of it. And look, you know, on that note, you know, we, we... Many people talk about us living as a society in the middle of a loneliness epidemic. Surely 
more community-minded results coming from green space has got to be addressing that. You know, this is all coalescing in a really fascinating way. Um, we know that loneliness, um, it was a big issue before COVID. Um, one in four Australian adults were reportedly feeling quite seriously lonely on multiple days a week. And maybe it's got even worse since COVID uh, came along and we're still dealing with the aftermath. And, you know, it doesn't take a, a big... Uh, expensive study to show that when COVID uh, occurred, people flooded out into the parks to find ways to ensure that they were able to reconnect with their neighbours, to maintain connection with loved ones, which weren't simply possible because we were all confined within our homes for very protracted uh, uh, times. My work in Australia has shown exactly what I think each and every listener already knows. And that is, those of us who had quality green spaces nearby where we felt safe, where we felt rewarded by visiting, we were actually more likely to visit them on a scale of four times. We were also five times, five times more likely to feel that those visits helped us to keep connected with our loved ones and with our neighbours and everyone else. And and get this, this is what really knocked my socks off. Those green spaces, which we felt were high quality, were 10 times more likely to keep us feeling a sense of solace and respite and just keeping it all together during what were, oh, I think what we can all agree, were quite extraordinarily difficult times. It just shows that the foresight of local councillors, of um, politicians, of the, the, the everyday person, working hard to maintain and preserve and create better quality green spaces, not only pay dividends right now, but in the years ahead. Thomas Carolina touched on it as well when we talk about the inequitable state of access, that, you know, more affluent suburbs have better access or cities or towns or regions have better access to these green spaces. Just going back to those health benefits, you know, we know that heart disease and diabetes often impacts various striations on those socioeconomic statuses as well. It feels like it's almost a double hit for those people who aren't in those expensive suburbs. It, it can be. Um, however, there is good news on this, which is that there are studies around the world, including some in Australia, which I have led and others, which show that um, if we're able to green and improve the quality of the green spaces within communities which are less advantaged, there is a tendency to have even greater returns on investment um, because, uh, in part, this is seen to be a more important resource where often there are few other options. So you see here, what we find is that investing in these natural environments for people who are in um, higher levels of need, there's actually a tendency to have greater levels of benefit, not less. That's the great news. And, you know, going back to the loneliness part, I, I think it's useful just to put a little uh, um, indicator of how powerful this can be. So um, uh, a study which I published last year showed that if we are able to meet our target of about 30% um, uh, parkland cover within the neighborhood, within a, a short walk from home, we're able to reduce the odds of becoming lonely by a quarter in the average adult in Australia, a quarter. Right? Um, but here's where it gets really interesting. 
a lot of people live alone, and living alone does not mean people are lonely, but it is a bit of a risk factor. For people who are living alone, having the same amount of green space halves the odds of becoming lonely. It halves it. I can't think of any other intervention, any other action that we can do that is quite as potent for reducing loneliness in Australia over a period of four or five years than investing in good quality green spaces that everyone has access to. Thomas, this has been fascinating. I'll let you get back to the green spaces and the duck ponds of Wollongong University. Thanks for having a chat this morning. <laughs> Thank you morning. very much, Nick. <laughs> Thomas Astelberg is the Professor of Population Health and Environmental Data Science at the University of Wollongong. On the line, we have David from Cape Patterson. David, uh, councils need to be working harder, you think? Um, they do, I think, but I think the problem... I, I agree with everything that's been said about the value of green spaces. We've got to ask ourselves why councils aren't improving them and and I think it ignores the fact that all new developments now the developers have to put in a certain amount of money usually four or five thousand dollars towards green spaces in their parks that's supposed to pay for the establishment of it and some ongoing maintenance what we all forget when we buy a block of land is we pay, each person who buys a block of land or a house and land package actually pays that for four or five thousand dollars in their their purchase price for their, their package. Mm-hmm. So it, it it comes down to what what councils can afford, uh, and and the expanding councils definitely have a massive financial issue, but also the fact that now if there's a building development, the developer pays for putting in the drainage, the streets, the parks and all the infrastructure and then that's passed on to the purchaser. I'll use an example here in Cape Patterson where a few years ago, uh, because a lot of the streets in Cape Patterson are not sealed and have no drainage, a special rate was levied on all of us to upgrade them. Um, It was badly handled, so uh, there was an enormous backlash and and, uh, we still don't have sealed roads, which many of us quite like. But the levy was about $14,000, up to $50,000 per property. And and that really... uh, raise the understanding that I had that basically you get what you're willing to pay for or can afford to pay for. Yeah, it's an interesting one, David, and I, I agree with it. You know, it's a lot of pressure on councils. It it does, I think, mean that councils and community groups need to be working incredibly closely together on that one. A couple of texts have come through. Barb saying an area is so much more likely to flood if you're taking away the green space. Of course, if you've got grass, plants, trees, they help bring that rain in. You turn a park into a housing development. You've got buildings. You've got concrete. You've got bitumen. The rain can't soak into the ground. It builds up to flood levels. We've seen it happen 
Barb adding that these new outer suburban developments absolutely horrify me. And no name on this text, but it's an interesting one because I did mention before that I think it can be very easy outside of metro areas to take green space for granted. And this text is saying, look, with the increasing industrial agricultural areas and also the mental health problems we're seeing in rural areas, we still need to be thinking closely about it. Many people in rural areas seeking out green space for well-being. It's not only city areas that need it, physical health issues as well, a big one for rural areas. And on the phone line, we've got Gregory in Swan Hill. And Gregory, you'd agree that, you know, these green spaces matter to regional and rural areas as well. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Um, yeah, look, you know, the rural areas, um, we've got in, increasing, you know, mental health issues and, you know, suicides, mm. um, especially in young, young males, um, physical health too, you know, um, which is all sort of linked up to physical and mental health. But, um, yeah, with, with uh, the work I'm doing, I, I work alone a lot, um, Luckily, I'm I'm out in out in the field and out in the bush, and um, you know, quite enjoy it. There's always um, good things, you know, some good things to see and make you feel good. And um, yeah, I just think rural, you know, councils and government organisations really need to factor in, you know, the increasing um, like industrial type of agriculture we're doing, um, because. People out in rural towns really love getting out into the natural areas, even though they may not even realise it. Like, <laughs> you know, like woodcutters love being out in the bush, but it's not really the cutting wood, it's being out in the bush. You know, like, um, yeah, there's so many things where people just enjoy, you know, getting out into the natural areas and they don't even realise the, the good that it's doing them. I think you're right on that one, Gregory. And look, as more people are moving, you know, we're still seeing population increases in regional centres, in smaller towns as well. People trying to get out and about, change their lifestyle. Green spaces, access to nature is a huge part of that. Uh, you don't want to see that increasing population, the housing developments that are needed, taking away from that. What do green spaces mean to you? What's the access like for you where you live? Are they community gardens? Are they parks? Are they actual bushland? This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. My name's Nick Healy, uh, filling in for Rochelle for the next few days, and we're talking about green spaces at the moment. We know what a big difference they make to us. Um, well-being, our health, much, much more than that in terms of community, even in terms of energy consumption and cooling down cities, they're a huge impact. How do we get more of them then? Well, the answer might be right above our heads. Associate Professor John Rayner is an urban horticulture expert. He's the author of a brand new guide for greening up rooftops. In fact, John, if I'm right, the, the guide's being officially launched today. That's right. Yeah, we've uh, we just launched it at uh, the Parliament House Green Roof. Uh, in the rain, I might add, but uh, still. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, we just launched it. It's a, it's a guide for plant use for, for green roofs. So let's talk about how difficult or easy it is to green up a rooftop. I mean, uh, many people point to them and say this is a simple way of making sure we've got greater green spaces. Is it all that simple? 
Well, it can be. <clears throat> I mean, some green roofs are uh, enormously complex and they might be, you know, have swimming pools and trees and a whole range of other sort of planted features. But uh, they can also be a, a very thin skin uh, of, of soil and, uh, and plants that could be as shallow as 10 or 15 centimetres uh, and uh, be quite uh, light in terms of the overall weight loading. So, and, and those sort of, you know, what we call extensive or shallow profile green roofs have or can have huge amounts of, uh, of benefits. Um, you know, they can retain up to 90% of the rainfall that falls on them. So, you wow. know, reducing flooding events uh, at a neighbourhood or you know, precinct scale. So, um, so these are the sort of, you know, green roof interventions that we're seeing in a lot of parts of the world and uh, increasingly in Australia as well. In terms of your guide, I mean, how, you're talking about what sort of plants we need to be considering. This isn't just about filling a roof up with greenery. It's got to be planned to some level. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And look, most uh, green roof projects will be led uh, through a you know design process that involves uh, you know structural engineers and architects and landscape architects. Um, and our work, uh, I'm part of the Green Infrastructure Research Group at the university. Our our work over the last 15 years has really been about trying to quantify these benefits and uh, ensure that there's evidence to support their, their use. So uh, a lot of uh, green roofs internationally are, are these sort of uh, almost like blanket type layers that get uh, put on structures and, uh, uh, and there's a whole lot of new technologies uh, and uh, systems that are available now to, to install them on rooftops. What, what sort of technologies? Well, um, the earlier, you know, earlier green roofs, you know, sort of uh, in the latter part of last century, uh, were often uh, became problematic through leaks into the structure, but also through weight. So a lot of newer green roof systems uh, have got uh, plastic drainage layers where water, you know, is is go off the roof fairly quickly, uh, and also have lighter um, soils and, and substrates to support. Um, you know, planted or vegetated systems on uh, on these shallow profiles. So, John, you often yeah, see a lot of technology development. I was going to say you often see, uh, you know, in some cities, and often photos are very much based in overseas cities of those gorgeous buildings where the greenery is being built into the walls and on the roof. They're these stunning mm. architectural masterpieces. Is that sort of also what we can be talking about when we're looking at that? I guess landscaped building surfaces. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, green roofs um, is one element of this, but, you know, green walls and green facades, which is the use of climbing plants on, uh, on the facade or exterior of the building, uh, are also part of the story around uh, sort of green structure technologies. Um, and, yes, you can have those amazing buildings that you often see in parts of Asia, uh, particularly in Singapore, where they've had mm. uh, you know, green roofs mandated for more than... 10 years now, um, and that's and green walls. So that helps to explain why you see so much urban greening in places like that. Um, so they are, those sort of installations are fantastic, um, but we're also keen to promote simpler, lower cost uh, forms of, uh, of green roof and green wall that uh, can really help to green up the most difficult uh, of uh, spaces in cities. I'm thinking, you know, you're talking the benefits, you know, I'm imagining just even things as simple as air pollution and, and biodiversity, having somewhere for pollinating insects to be. I mean, these are all going to be part of that impact, part of that benefit. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I was just talking to someone here at this event, uh, explaining how I uh, had a crazy day uh, about uh, 10 years ago in London where I visited 10 green roofs in a day, sort of right <laughs> in the centre of the city. Uh, and these were all um, what are called, you know, eco-roofs or biodiversity roofs that are just, you know, essentially roofs that are filled a lot of the time with uh, rubble uh, and then roughly planted or, or seeded um, with species that provide habitat for, uh, you know, for birds, animals, insects and so on. And uh, this is where the big growth is in, uh, in green roofs around the world, is in these low-cost biodiverse uh, installations that can really uh, provide huge benefits for, um, for you know, birds and animals in, in cities. You said that growth around the world. I mean, are we seeing that echoed in Australia or are we just starting to get a handle on this? No, it's, it's growing here as well. Um, you know, we had a PhD student that published a bit of work last year that uh, even in Melbourne there's been a, an exponential growth in green roofs over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, and that's ranged from, it's largely still podium type, uh, you know, planters uh, with you know trees and shrubs, and but it's all, you're also starting to see these uh, lower cost green roofs, and then also you know roofs that are based around um, you know container systems for food production as well. So, just in terms of access, though, I mean, obviously there's a limitation to that access by the simple fact that they're they're on top of a building that you know may not be accessible to absolutely everybody. Mm. Yep, uh, that's true. Which is why another area of growth in green roofs has been. Uh, non-accessible green roofs that people look out on, particularly in oh. hospital and healthcare settings. And, uh, you know, when I got on the call before, I think I heard uh, Thomas uh, talking from uh, Wollongong. Uh, so, uh, again, there's, there's, you know, part of our research team is involved, uh, you know, environmental psychologists that have worked to understand what sort of uh, plantings and what sort of designs and plant materials will work best to promote um, well-being of people looking out on green roofs. Uh, and so, um, you know, there's hospitals being built all around the world now with, with green roofs that are not accessible, but, you know, you're looking from, um, from hospital, uh, you know, from wards, but also communal spaces or staff rooms. You're looking out on these, these spaces that uh, are filled with, with plants, both, you know, succulents and uh, colourful annuals and perennials, and, um, and these provide real benefits for people. Um, because quality of urban space, quality of urban greening is actually a, a, a big factor here. It's, it's access to urban space, which is important, but quality is another factor that's, that's really crucial and plants can provide that quality experience. Yeah. John, I'd never even thought about how it's um, entirely possible to get those benefits just from being able to see out the window and know that it's there. Uh, John Rayner, Associate Professor of Urban Horticulture at Melbourne University and the author of the Burnley Green Roof Plant Guide, uh, which is a free guide that he's launched, well, just a couple of minutes ago, actually. He was at the event. Very generous of him to uh, take some time uh, and call in. Uh, Tom on the line from Williamstown. Tom, good morning to you. Well, thanks for taking my call. No, great. Yeah, look, what did you want to talk about? Well, look, I um, look. I obviously live in a really beautiful part of the world around Melbourne with lots of uh, parks, foreshore parks that have beautiful views of the water and the city. However, a lot of these parks, um, unfortunately, for whatever reason, are in a state of decline. And the biggest problem I have is that they're not watered or they're not irrigated. So they become quite dry uh, with the ocean winds and, and the sun and what have you. So you have 
large parts of it that uh, dry out. You have trees that die. Um, you have plants that are just generally in decline and they just become uninviting and paths that are unattended to. And I think what I've observed as a resident there, I've observed the council upgrading sports grounds, almost gold plating them to beautiful standards. And that's great for the sporting clubs. Yet mm. I've just seen a complete a complete neglect for open space. An open space um, that's functional to me is an open space that's um, irrigated, especially during um, the summer months, to, to keep it green and to keep uh, keep people, um, I guess, uh, give the opportunity for people to access it, invite them to access it. Yet there seems to be this disparity and unwillingness by particularly a lot of councils to actually irrigate and water open spaces um, to keep them green, to keep them vibrant, to help cool, obviously, the local environment but also to keep them in um keep them in good condition overall so that's just what i wanted to say and uh yeah Tom, do you think that's just a money resources thing or do you think it's also i, I guess a sense that sporting uh sporting uh, i guess areas are, are valued higher at the moment there's definitely um higher value we we live in a yeah. society that really values our sport and, yeah. and and as part of that and look i don't begrudge sporting facilities being you know, gold-plated as such, because it provides opportunities for, for particularly young people to attend to sport and, and all the physical and social uh, benefit that brings. So I don't want to make it an argument between sport and open space, but it's just the observation is you get a sports precinct with a brand-new sports field, brand-new lights, pavilion, car park, and this may cost, you know, 10 or $15 million, and that's fine. But then you just see, like I said, if you know, I'll... I'll uh, I'll challenge anyone in, around the area to just go for a walk around some of the foreshore parks at Williamstown. And it just appears that there's just a lack of love overall, and that's been uh, the case for probably decades now. And no amount of me shouting to council to ask them to do something has seemed to uh, pick up the cudgel because we're probably not organised as individuals who attend these parks and open spaces, whereas a sporting club has a lot more uh, voice because you have more people in a collective and therefore, they probably get a little bit more uh, attention as a result. But there's certainly, uh, yeah, I think um, there's a lack of value and a, a lack of understanding by local governments about the value in actually really having high quality, highly maintained um, open spaces. Tom, really glad you called in. Thank you, Tom from Williamstown. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Nick Healy is my name. You've got me for the next few days filling in for Rochelle, talking about how we expand green spaces, whether they're green spaces that we're getting access to or whether they're there to promote biodiversity, cooling down areas. There's plenty of options. We were looking at rooftops just a minute or two ago, but another option that does get lost in the mix is the humble nature strip. Uh, it's more than just a place to put bins, a backup car, parking space, or a great way to fight with neighbours. Um, Emma Cutting is the founder of the Heart Gardening Project. It was a drive to make a Melbourne pollinator corridor. Emma, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Tell me about the project. Well, the uh, the Melbourne pollinator corridor is our, our main focus at the moment at the Heart Gardening Project, and what we're looking at doing is turning a lot of nature strips and other barren, degraded pieces of public and public-private pieces of land into gorgeous gardens for our local biodiversity. So putting, designing for plants and animals and fungi first, and then you know, and that's creating beautiful gardens for everyone to enjoy. 
And we're doing this where, yeah, we're, we're linking up the Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne to Westgate Park. So it's an eight kilometre wildlife corridor for our native pollinating insects. I was going to say, this seems like a, a really big shift in the way we think about these spaces. Are you getting a lot of buzz around this? Not to, sorry, I wasn't trying to make a pollinator pun. Sorry, I really wasn't, but there we go. It's in now. You're going to have to wear it. Sorry, Emma. It's there, it's there. Um, look, absolutely. And I think that it's absolutely worthwhile as well. This, the power in street guarding, the power of nature strips. Mm is immense. I absolutely think that nature strips are an untapped goldmine of opportunity around, you know, addressing a lot of different issues, um, you know, climate crisis, our biodiversity crisis, but also our mental health, you know, really addressing loneliness, depression, isolation, and the ecological anxiety, which is really um, being seen a lot in our younger generation. And it's really everyone. funny because they're almost invisible to us. There's such a part of Australian suburban life you don't even really notice a nature strip yeah. until until it's done something to annoy you. <laughs> Nick, that's so, so true. I, I would say that most people wouldn't have stood on their nature strip and just had a look around um, and just looked at the site. From a gardening point of view, from an opportunity... The amount of space that nature strips take up is immense. So there was a study out of Uni Melb that came up with over a third of open green space is nature strips. That equates in, in the municipality that I'm in, City of Port Phillip, that equates to almost 360 acres of land. Now wow. this is land that, yes, it's, it's, it's immense. So sometimes they can seem really small but the power in nature strips is immense because, and yes, we've got utilities in there, but actually they can't be developed. And also it's one of the only, I, I think to my knowledge, it's the only public land which, oh, I, I think it, it scares council a bit, where it's actually shared management between the community and council. And it is an interesting one. Emma, I'm so sorry. We're just rapidly running out of time. And I'm really glad you mentioned council because we've been talking about how council and the work they need to do to maintain those spaces and their limited budgets can be really complex. Des Hudson's actually the mayor of Ballarat. Des, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Is it a balancing act making sure that, you know, council's limited resources go where they're needed when it comes to these green spaces? Yeah, Nick, I, I think you're right, and it was great listening to Emma. And if I refresh my memory, I think Emma was up talking to our friends of Botanical Gardens earlier in the year, but I certainly remember a conversation in relation to the importance of the pollinating corridors, and I found it really fascinating. But it, it is right, that shared responsibility, and whilst most owners look after that strip out the front of their property, but it is mo most often on council-owned land. Is that sort of, I guess, does that put an onus on council? Um, I think that shared partnership, most people take care of it wanting to make their property look neat and tidy. Mm. Um, so I guess in terms of the responsibility for councillors, making sure that there are no risks associated uh, with whatever happens on the nature strip. So I would imagine many councils have some policy around what can and can't be. We've had a period where some... Uh, people tried 
to use the space and, and growing vegetables and and that was a bit problematic. But as Emma was saying, I think there is enormous opportunity for us to look at how nature strips can be used um, to what one increase the pollination and movement of bees through corridors, whether it is about having more people doing some gardening, but we need to make sure first and foremost that those safe those locations are safe. Des, thank you very much. Des is the Mayor of Ballarat. No apologies. Des, uh, thank you for staying on the line to have a chat about that. Many people texting in, talking about what we can do for those green spaces and a few people getting in touch to say, what about the humble backyard and making sure we're just doing a little more with native plants in that? Thank you to everyone who called and texted.